What happens when you stop seeing people? What happens when you stop seeing people behind bars as criminals and start seeing them as human beings? Welcome to Sentences: Storytellers Beyond Bars, the podcast where we explore the impact of the criminal justice system in our communities. All right, you're archiving, right? Yeah. All right. <laughs> um, hi, everybody. Welcome to this episode of Sentences. This is Alfred, and this is Jose. And um, today, yeah, we're back at it. It's been a while, huh? Yeah, it has been. It's been, it's going to be weird trying to share a mic. Um, but a lot has happened since the last time we recorded together. The last time we recorded together, we did like a short piece together. We read yeah, something, right? we did. It was just us two, and we discussed uh, some of the writings from the Disconnect Reconnect journal. What was the piece called? I think it was... Um, the Past is Not Past. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, that was good. I think there's a couple pieces I was prepping for maybe last week or two weeks ago. I want to, there's a couple pieces I want to read from the new journal. I, there's, I'm nowhere near cool enough to try and like read this one that it's like, it has like a little rap rhyme kind of thing going on. I'm going to try. I'll try. It's just for your guys' entertainment, but I'm not today. You know, at some point I do want to read that. Maybe Jose or someone can do a little beatbox behind or something. (laughs) And there's a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, there's a lot of stuff in the news about like, prison strikes and stuff, and I don't know too much about. Um, but I'm hoping that in the future episode, maybe not too not too soon, we'll still we'll have way more information to share. Mm-hmm. It's been a crazy day. It's been a crazy day. Yeah. The semester started again. Um, I'll let Jose talk a little bit. Yeah, the semester started. I teaching a class this this whole school year, uh, and it's at 8 a.m. So I'm getting up really early. And then I'm also taking two seminars, which means that I will not have much time to sleep. Uh, but uh, looking forward to it still. But who needs to sleep, right? You're good. Yeah. <laughs> it's a luxury, Jose. Yeah. You don't need that. Just work. All right, so today we have a very special guest with us today. Um, we have Trevial Craig, who is a part of uh, the group of men from Lancaster. They worked with Dr. Roy and Words Uncaged. Um, and I'll let him exp- uh, introduce himself a little bit more. But I'm curious to get to know him a little bit more and uh, what he's been doing since he's been out of Lancaster, right? I think he, got, he said he got out in May. And um, I'll let him kind of take it from here. So welcome, Trivial. Thanks for, thanks for being here. How you doing? Thank you for having me. I'm good, good. Um, yeah, it's been a while. Right? We've been trying to connect. We've been trying to get you in the studio for a bit. It's been hit or miss. And... I, if it wasn't for your persistence, who knows how long it'd be before you get in here. I appreciate it. I appreciate no, it. I mean, you know, this is this is a part of the journey. You know, it's it's about telling a story that, that sometimes is never told. And, you know, it's nice to be able to help people understand the plight of, you know, reentering to society. Yeah, I think that's, that's something that's super important to share. And, and I, I know I want to try and make each episode focus on a specific... Um, topic or and it's getting I'm getting better at that I think we're getting better at focusing each each episode because I would love to just have everybody share their story and and just talk forever but um, I really want to get to uh, I don't know I don't know what I want to try and get to <laughs> I'm gonna let you we we'll get there oh yeah we will get there <laughs> we'll get there <laughs> but I do want to I want to know so you've been out since May May right? 18th how long did you serve in 26 years 26 years okay and so May 2018, right? Yes. And you said you transitioned into uh, a transition home that wasn't 
anything different Not too much different From prison you said Oh yeah I was um, Originally I was supposed To go to the Kavanaugh house When I was released From prison But you know You go through The parole board And from the time You're found suitable For parole Until your actual release There's a number of things You have to go through And it's like 180 days so your counselor may say this week, oh, you're going, get ready, and then it don't happen because you have to go all the way to the governor's office. Then the governor review it and sign off. Either he either sign off on it or he will rescind the suitability finding. So the Kavanaugh House couldn't hold the bed because it was uncertain when, you know, it was going to come home. So I had to go to the Walden House, Health Right 360, right there, right across the street from MacArthur's Park. Oh, man, it was like prison all over again, you know. Um, you couldn't do anything in there. Let's let's outline this uh, parole um, process for our listeners who aren't familiar. Right. Um, so you apply for parole. Well, no, actually, you don't apply for parole. You know, actually, I mean, as you know, I was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So um, I didn't have a chance, the opportunity to go to the parole board. I was, by law, I was supposed to die in prison. People with life without the possibility of parole, our parole, we call it toe tag parole because the only way you were going to leave prison is, is dead with a toe tag. So, um, by the grace of God, I filed for uh, sentence commutation in 2012 and in um, 2017, May 18th, to be exact, of 2017, uh, Parole Agent 3 came and interviewed me on my uh, commutation packet and on August 18th of 2017, um, Governor Brown commuted my sentence from life without the possibility of parole to 25 years of life, which made me immediately eligible to go to the parole board. Oh, I see. Okay. Wow. Almost a year ago. Over a year ago, for sure. Well, the whole process, really, when you look from the time of the interview to going home, was one year exactly. Huh. Wow. Um, so when, when you... Up- after you got your sentence commuted to 25 to life, yeah. then you were eligible for parole. Yes. And then you apply for parole. Well, no, you don't, you don't apply for parole. See see how little I know about this? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you, don't apply, you don't apply for parole. Um, the parole board, the board of uh, prison hearings, they set a date for you to go to the parole board. And they'll send you a notice in the mail. And, and I don't want to go too technical because that'll take you a long time to figure it out. And I don't want to confuse anybody. But basically, the parole, the board of prison hearings, every month they have a calendar. And that comes out. It's on the web, CDCR website. And you can, your family can check to see when you go to the parole board. But they also send you a notice through the institutional mail. They set the date on when you go to the parole board. And I went to the parole board on February 8th. Of this year, so what's the next step after you go to the parole board and they say, okay, we grant you parole? Okay, you go to the parole board. You present your case to the parole board. Basically, when you when you go in, it's a hearing. They want to the parole board want to make sure that you understand how you became a person that was able to commit whatever crime that you were going to the to the board for. And so you would have to go through your childhood, your home as a child, you go through your schooling, you talk about your friends, you talk about everything, you know, you know, because they want to make sure that you understand that you have insight on how you became that person. And so from there on um, they was the district attorney is present as well via a monitor and once they find you suitable for parole, they sign off on it. Then they have 180 days before it's finalized. And in that 180 days, they have a panel 
that overlooks the decision. And then once they finalize the decision, then it would go to the uh, to the to the governor's office. And then from there, the governor's office has I think like 30 to 40 days to finalize the decision. Now, if uh, if you're denied parole, then you can kind of apply for parole because they have a, a, a paper you can fill out. You know, it's basically, I can't think of the name. I'm drawing a blank right now. And a uh, petition for advancement. You know, like just say the parole board can deny you up to 15 years now. So you can go to the parole board. And if I've been in there not doing what I'm supposed to do, the parole board can deny me for up to 15 years. Anywhere from 2 to 15, 3 to 15 years. So that means for those 2 to 15 years, you're not eligible to apply again. Well, you can file from there. You can file a petition for advancement, and you can state the claim on why you shouldn't have gotten uh, a 15-year denial. Uh. And then it would go back before the 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 uh, whole parole board, and then they will say, "Okay, we agree with you," and so we'll say. We'll see you in 16 months or, you know, instead of that 15 year denial, they can cut it down to whatever number they feel is suitable. So what's the condition of you being on parole? How does that work once you're once you get that? Well, um, once I because I was a gang member, Mm -hmm. um, I can't have any contact with um, anybody, a known gang member or someone that I would I should reasonably know is a gang member. You know, and what I mean by contact is not just walking down the street, hey, hi, and then I get locked up. No, but associating, hanging out with, partying with, you know, uh, things of that nature. Um, that's one condition. Um, I have to take, uh, I have to stay in the uh, transitional house for six months. Um, I have to take drug tests once a month because I had a history of marijuana use. So I have to be tested for marijuana Um the, the surviving victims in my crime, I can't have any contact with the surviving victims in my crime, nor can I have any contact with the deceased uh, family. And I have to stay away from any area that they may, uh, that I may know that they may populate or anything like that. And then how long is that for? Ever. Well, I, okay. well, I ain't going to say forever, as long as I'm on parole. Right now, I'll be on parole for a minimum of seven years. Okay. You okay. know, as of right now. And then, so the, the let's talk about the Kavanaugh House because there's a couple people that that I know are staying there. Yeah. And I know very little, as you can tell, I know very little about a lot of things. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I'm really curious about the Kavanaugh House. How did you hear about it? Um, and what is it? Well, basically, when, the first time I heard about the Kavanaugh House, it was through Dr. Roy. Um, Dr. Roy came in and. Let us know all the, all the fellas that was involved in Words on Cage, and and um, the Bachelor program, you know, at at Lancaster, that if you guys are parole, we have a house that's walking distance, you know, from the school, and they basically went and talked to Robert Anderson, who runs the Kavanaugh House, and they came kind of came up with, and he was willing to accept us that was coming out of prison, you know, that's tied into to Cal State LA. And the Kavanaugh House, basically, it's a sober living, you know, house, and there's 27 people living in the house. It's a three-story house with probably about 15 bedrooms in it. You know, it might have been, you know, a little studio, like, you know, a little three-story apartment complex, and they just basically tore the doors down and made it into one because it's three kitchens. You know, you got, like, 
ten bathrooms, <laughs> you know. So it was, yeah. you know, it, it probably was like each each floor was his own apartment, and they tore it down. It's a sober living home, and um, you know. So they you, have you cooking, huh? <laughs> well, cooking and cleaning. You cook your own breakfast. Yeah. You know, everything is provided for you. Food is provided for you. You know, bunch of fresh fruit, pastries. Everything is provided for you there. Okay. You know, you got for breakfast. You can go in there. They got waffles, uh, eggs. Bacon, sausages, uh, cereal, oatmeal, you know, everything is, is provided for you, all the food. And you also, if you choose to, you can go out and buy your own food. We have a separate freezer where you, refrigerator where you can store your own food that you may go out and buy as well. And then uh, at night, they have a cook that he, if you sign up, they cook dinner. Like tonight, we have a uh, Bacon cheeseburgers for dinner tonight. Oh, nice. <laughs> I signed up for that one. Yeah, of course, I'm sure you did. <laughs> What are, what are some restrictions? Do you have any restrictions living in the Kavanaugh house? Well... Or does it depend on the person? No, well, yes and no. The rules of the Kavanaugh house is that um, you can't leave the Kavanaugh house before 6 a.m. And you have uh, Sunday through Thursday, you have to be in by 10 p.m. Um, uh, Friday and Saturdays, the curfew is extended to midnight. If you have a job where you may work the graveyard or something like that, that's the only way that you can miss curfew. Um, You have to sign in and sign out. When you sign out, you have to put the time that you leave and you have to put your activity down on the paper and the time you expect it to return. Then when you do return, you put the time that you return on the paper. Um, Then after you're there 30 days, you you can get a pass. I was gonna. I was just gonna ask, who's paying for all this? Who, how does this get paid for? Um, or it's through sponsoring uh, the. House? It's through. Uh, dang, I can't think of the name right now. It just slipped me. Well, it's an organization. I can't think of the name right now. It, it just slipped my mind no that worries. they they pay for everything. You know, they they allot so much money for whatever program you're in. They allot. I think it's stop stop the stop program. I don't know what stops represents. But that's what it's called, the STOP program. And STOP allots so much money per man, you know. Okay. And it gives like six months worth of funding at a time. Okay. All right, so you're May, June. You got until October, is that right? Ask her. She know. No. Who's she? Are we <laughs> My wife. Any, are we your wife's here. <laughs> she know. I don't, and the reason why I say that is I'm not putting you on blast. I'm not putting you on front street. <laughs> I don't know the date. She do. I'm sure. Uh, what's do you, okay? Do you want to introduce yourself or no? You don't have to. Don't worry. <laughs> if you can see the look she's giving Trevial right now. <laughs> Hello, my name is Hope, and the date is November twenty first. November twenty first. Yes. Oh, see, I don't know the date. I don't keep track. I I would be counting down the days like crazy. I don't right. Know. I'm counting down the days. <laughs> I don't keep track of days. Yeah. Because the day that we went to the parole board, he said to start that day, and six months from that day is November twenty first. So, no, no, the day when we entered, it's the it's the day when uh, I entered into transitional housing. Not no. the that's not what he said. See, yeah. I told you that's, that's not what he said. That's that's not what wait, that's, that's, that's not, not what, what the who parole said. officer said. The parole officer. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's the boss. All right. Whatever the boss says goes. <laughs> do you have any Do you have any plans for that big day? He's gonna move well, far it's, away. It's like you know, right before Thanksgiving. Mm, mm, so we're still trying to basically make plans for that day because it's, it's gonna be a, a great day. So 
we might have the family come out or I think I might want to go to Las Vegas. Right. I think I might want to go to Las Vegas because my mom lived in Las Vegas as well. Oh. And then her family. And then so okay. um, one of the things my mom wanted to do was like she wanted to rent like a hall or something, you know, and just have a big uh, blowout because mm-hmm. I have a lot of family in Vegas and all her family is in Vegas as well. It's been a while, so, huh? So, you know, go out there for Thanksgiving and just have a – if I can get a travel pass – you know, I have to get a travel pass for my uh, parole agent. I have to get permission. To, you know, to like cross state line or something. Yeah. Be, well, you can't. I can't go. I can't travel outside fifty miles outside of uh, Los Angeles County. And if I go outside of fifty miles of Los Angeles County, I have to get a travel pass from my parole agent. And, be, that, and that's for the entirety of your parole. That's like at least those seven years. Yeah. You said? Oh, for wow. as long as I'm on parole. Okay. I can't travel without permission. I mean, I can technically. But, however, if I was to come in contact with uh, law yeah, enforcement no. and they would ask, they ask me, am I on parole? Yeah, I'm on parole. Okay, you outside your county. You know, do your parole agent know this? Well, yeah, he know. But then they still going to, you know, yeah. call my parole agent. It's going to be a hassle. So they give you a paper that you yeah. carry with you. Um, when you, it's a travel pass that you carry with you when you go outside at 50 yeah. miles. So, what have you been doing this whole time since you've been? What do you do like, during the day at the, uh, now that you've been at the Kavanaugh House? Well, I've seen you on campus a couple of times, so I know you've been keeping busy. I just want to. Yeah, it, it was funny because when I came out of prison, first time I, I think that was the first time I came on the campus, I met you. Yeah, I, I remember that. You, yeah, it was at the desk, right? Yeah. And Dr. Roy's like, hey, you know, just yeah. try me out. You know, that was my first time on ever been on a college campus. You know, so I then um, well Monday I had uh, uh, a lunch with Tiffany Lamb at the university restaurant. That was my first time ever seeing a college campus in action. You know, I was like a kid in a candy store. You know, just like wow, this is college. That's crazy, huh? Yeah, because you know I went straight from my senior year high school. That's when I was incarcerated. So I went from 18 years old to 44. You know, coming out forty-four year old man. You know, but to answer your question, you know, I've just been um, me and uh, D'Angelo, my partner. You know, um, under words and case, we've just been, you know, going around teaching, um, like a USC um, General Hospital there and um, Torrance Medical Department, Medical Center. We've been teaching uh, narrative therapy classes there. Oh you know, yeah. Yeah. Okay. We, you know we. Um, we've gone around and had an opportunity to speak at Horseman um, Junior High, to speak to UCLA uh, college-bound students. Um, we've just been trying to participate and giving back in many things that we possibly can. I'm curious, what's this narrative therapy you talk about? Well, narrative therapy is basically um, trying to help people identify and understand their trauma. But But the thing is, is that they are doing it through writing. That's where the narrative come in at. The narrative, they're writing their own narrative. They're writing their own story. Because a lot of times when we go through life and we've experienced uh, uh, traumatic uh, incidents or we've gotten into a lot of trouble because a lot of times our behavior, and, and I'll speak personally, my behavior was driven, you know, it was, it was driven by a traumatic event in my life. I began to think that I was the problem. But I wasn't the problem. The problem was the problem. And most most times, people that are dealing, when you're dealing with people that have, uh, uh, that are living their life based upon trauma, they begin to think that they're the problem. And when you do narrative therapy and they begin to write their life, 
you know, write write their story down, they begin to see that I'm not the problem, that the problem is the problem. And in that, you empower them to see that I am not the problem, and you empower them to see and figure out their own solutions instead of you telling them what they have to do or what they need to do. How much work is it, do you, in your experience, doing this work, does it take to get... Fr- someone to realize that they're not the problem, that the problem is a problem. How much, how hard is that for someone to realize that? Actually, it haven't really been that hard. And the reason why is because we share our story. In sharing our story first, it makes people comfortable to open up and share their story because I can't come in and say, hey, you know what, man, you've been traumatized and, and this is what you need to do. And, and I'm sitting over here like I don't have a care in the world. But once you see, okay, yeah, I've been traumatized, but man, that guy's been traumatized too. And he's courageous or bold enough to tell me about his trauma, then let me tell him about mine as well. So you, when you set that stage, you make people feel safe and you make people feel comfortable. Then they open up and they tell all their, they tell all their business. <laughs> better, for better or worse, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Because I used to work at a school um, in Bow Heights, and they were always trying to find ways for for kids to realize, right, that they've gone through some some stuff, and that the way they're behaving or the way that the, why they did what they did mm-hmm. isn't it because they're bad people, right? And so there's is because of all this other stuff that you know I'm sure comes out during this narrative therapy, right? These stories that you hear or you read, um, but I think it makes a big difference when you have somebody who's been in prison who's kind of gone through hell and back yeah. and then say, hey guys, like, let me tell you my story. Then someone who's like, hey guys, hey kids, let's write your story. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, so I think it's a big difference to have people like you maybe come go around. That's really good work that you guys yeah, are doing. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of times people don't even understand, you know, that they've been traumatized, you know, because we've been living in that environment or, you know, dealing living with that trauma for so long that it, it becomes just a way of life. You know, if you become desensitized to it, you know, I like to use this example, this analogy right here is like, you know, growing up in the inner cities, if the fire truck and ambulance and stuff was, was driving down the street, you know, with the sirens blazing and they turned within the, our community, the first thing we used to do when we jump on our dirt, oh man, somebody got knocked down, you know, meaning someone got shot or, or was murdered or something. And we would jump on our bikes and we would ride to that block just to see if somebody at 13, 12, 14 years old, that's not common thinking, you know? But growing up in the urban community, you know, in those gang-infested communities, people getting shot, people getting killed, seeing, going to funerals, things like that, we became desensitized to the fact that this is murder. We became desensitized to the urban warfare. So it became a normal, you know, and we didn't look at it as being a traumatic event then. But you take that same kid, if you take him out of the inner city and you put him in, in Bel Air or Beverly Hills or, or, or somewhere like that, and they see an ambulance or paramedics or, you know, the fire truck or something like that, they're going to think, oh, Miss Jones slipped and fell. She need assistance. Yeah. You know, you see the, you see the difference there? Yeah. And I, I thought about two questions. First one, when was the time, do you remember the moment when you had that, oh, that oh moment when you were, when you realized that I'm not the problem? The problem is the problem. Do you remember that moment? Well, um, I'll, I'll give you a little background first, if I may. You know, my father, you know, my, my trauma was my rejection by my father. And so 
I live my life, you know, seeking that validation that I never did get from my father because, uh, you know, I, when you look, most men want to grow up and be like their father. Most women want to grow up and be like their mother. You know, my father said I wasn't nothing and I wasn't ever going to be nothing. So what that did was what made me susceptible to the influence of the older guys in the neighborhood because I was looking for that uh, that validation. So I would act, I acted out, and the more praise that I got from the fellas in my community, the more brazen I became in my behavior, you know. And so people always told me that I wasn't nothing, that I was, it was always me. And then, you know, one day... I, I didn't really think about it until I was in prison, you know, and that's when I had this epiphany. You know, I was in, I hate to admit this. I'm kind of ashamed to admit this. You know, this is one of them things I wish that wouldn't go out on the air, but it is. No, I'm saying it can't. It's a joke. <laughs> right. I was in prison. I was watching the Oprah Winfrey show. Oh, my God. <laughs> we watch Oprah. That's nothing to be embarrassed about. Let me tell you that right now. We love Oprah, okay? <laughs> All right, I love Oprah. <laughs> we watched Oprah Winfrey in prison, and she had a show on there about forgiveness. And it wasn't until I watched that show that I began to forgive my father, and that's when I began to realize that I'm not the problem. The problem is the problem. And that's when my life began to change in prison. Up until that point, I had had 22 write-ups in prison for violent or aggressive behavior and evading work. Mm-hmm. After I began to understand you know, my trauma and that I wasn't the problem, that the problem was the problem, I didn't receive not one write-up in, in, over the next 18-year span. Wow. That's how much my behavior changed. You know, and then Christ came into play. You know, I gave my life to Christ. And, I, you know, I just made in my mind that I was going to be a better individual, that I was going to be the best Christian that I possibly can become. Thank you, Oprah, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, forgot the, I forgot the second question. Don't you hate when that happens? I hate when that happens, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about that bacon cheeseburger that you're going to have tonight. <laughs> What do you okay? So, work-wise, you know, um, I, this might be too personal or not, but like, you know, are you working now, or what kind of work do you want to get into? Well, has it been difficult? Maybe I haven't found a job yet. You know, I'm I'm currently looking for a job. Um, I don't care what kind of work I do. Hmm. You know, I just want to I just want to be able to earn a paycheck. You know, to provide for my family. You know, bring something to the table. You know, for my family, you know, I've been looking, uh, preferably for, like for a graveyard shift, because if I can work the graveyard shift, then I can continue doing, you know, with words uncaged what I do throughout the day, throughout the week. You when you gonna sleep? Huh? <laughs> when you gotta sleep? <laughs> hey, you know, believe it or not, I don't sleep as it is. No, no. You know, since I've been out, since I've been out of prison, my sleep pattern has changed. Mm. You know, whenever I get comfortable, I go to sleep. If I'm riding down the street. With my wife in the car I get comfortable She'll nudge me Wake up Because I'm asleep You know um, Talking on the phone If I get comfortable I go to sleep huh. You know uh, For her birthday We went to uh, uh, the, the pier In Long Beach The Pike Nice And uh, and then we went to the movies We went to go see uh, What was that? Uncle Drew Uncle Drew When it first came out Right? Oh, okay. And she messed up <laughs> because she showed me that the chairs reclined. Uh. <laughs> so I sat in that chair, and the chair reclined, 
And you know, I seen the opening credits, and she was nudging me. Wake up, so I'm not asleep. And she and I got mad. I got attitude. Stop nudging me. Stop. Okay, you gonna go to sleep? No, I'm not. That was that was the most expensive nap you ever took. I'm sure. Right. But I didn't. I didn't. I didn't pay for it. My brother did, so it was cool. But you know, but I I really don't. I may sleep a few hours a night. I just I just can't sleep. So what's the work that you're doing with Dr. Roy in Words and Cage? Because he said in the narrative therapy you're doing that with your partner. Well, uh, that's what we're doing with Dr. Roy. Dr. Roy okay. is, is, you know, since uh, in prison, when Dr. Roy first came, when we were both involved in Pause for Life, you know, Dr. Roy came in and that's what he was doing. He he had us doing narrative therapy and also writing college students. He was, and so, you know, we've been, we've been doing narrative therapy under Dr. Roy for maybe about five years, four or five years, something like that. Okay. It's not it's not something new, you know. Right, and, right. and also in there uh, the Protestant chaplain John, our pastor, he you know, he taught us narrative therapy as well, you know, and so between Doctor Roy and uh and, and Chaplain John, mm. narrative therapy been pounded in us. Mm. You know, so that's basically what we have been doing. And that's what you have to do in front of the parole board anyways, right? Basically kinda of like Confess your sins, quote unquote. No, ain't you, you ain't you ain't. It ain't no sin to confess. It's about accepting responsibility right. for your sin. You know, because with the parole board, they just want to know that you have insight, and and in order to develop insight, you know, you have to be able to express to them and say, look, this is the event in my life that changed everything. You you, you understand what I'm saying? You know, and this is where, with me, my behavior dipped at age 13. At age 13, I started smoking marijuana. You know, um, my uncle, I ain't going to put his name out there, but my uncle, we was in the backyard playing football at my grandparents' home. And my uncle said, my cousins are all older than me. You know, I came along, I was everybody's like five, six years older than me, all the boys. And we were playing football, and they were wearing me out back there in that backyard. And I, my uncle bought me on the side of the uh, garage. He said, man, you want the pain to go away? I said, yeah. He said, smoke this joint. And I'm like, oh, that's weed. My mama going to get me. He like, she ain't going to know. Smoke it. And so I smoked the joint with my uncle on the side of the garage. When I went back out and played football, it didn't hurt anymore. You know, I was yeah. so high that it didn't hurt. So I was dealing with so much, you know, with the rejection of my father. That I start smoking weed. That was the way that I looked at. I did not know how to cope. So the only coping mechanism that I had was smoking weed. Because I remember my uncle telling me that if you want the pain to go away, smoke this weed. So I wanted the pain to go away, so I began to smoke weed. You know, then I joined the gang, and, and then I started acting out violently because those became my coping mechanisms. So in order to demonstrate to the parole board that I understood you know where it all went wrong and I wrote an apology letter to my 13 year old self you know letting my 13 year old self know you know that trouble is ahead and I'm sorry that we don't have the adequate coping mechanisms you know and then from 13 you know my life spiraled out of control then um July 5th 1991 the man that I wanted the relationship with the man that I wanted to validate me the man that I wanted to be like was murdered you know, my father was murdered and I didn't know how to cope. So I began to plunge even deeper. And then right after that, me and my grandmother, who I was extremely close with, 
she died while I was holding her hand, you know, in the hospital. Then my favorite auntie was dying of breast cancer. Then my girlfriend at the time had an abortion and killed my child. I had no coping mechanisms. I didn't know how to cope with those things. At 17 years old, you know, I felt like the world was was, was smothering me. And I took a deep breath. And I, when I came up for air, I was sitting in Lancaster State Prison serving life without the possibility of parole. Deep, huh? <laughs> I mean. But I had to, this is what I had to explain to the parole board. Yeah. That's crazy. That that happened. That helped. So narrative therapy helped you with all that, right? It helped me. It helped me to be able to identify. Uh huh. You know, because it took the onus off of me. You know, and put the on put on the problem. It put the spotlight on the problem. So once I began to understand what the problem was, and I began to deal with the problem, because it was all about. I wasn't angry. I was angry at my father. Mm. You know, the problem was that my father abandoned me. You know, and once I understood that, you know, and then now, however, there is still a responsibility with me because, I mean, like, I was in prison for seven years and I still blame my father for everything wrong that I did. You know, but once I watched that Oprah Winfrey show and I began to forgive my father, now, you know, I always like to say um, with knowledge comes responsibility. Once I forgave my father, now I see I have a responsibility. So I had to take responsibility for my actions and once I took responsibility for my actions I realized that there had to be a change because I looked in the mirror and I did not like who I saw in the mirror and I decided from that point on that there was going to be a change in my life yeah that's deep but that's that's crazy (laughs) hope is making me laugh (laughs) man that's I think this this is like her this is her first time ever really hearing me go in depth Mm. every time we talk it's kind of like she heard me as kind of shallow, so you know she want to start fanning me in a minute. Gonna is, take an offer in a minute. Is is this how deep you go when you when you're sharing your story with the students you're working with? Yes. Yeah, this helps them. Yeah, this is. I want to write now. <laughs> <laughs> Man, um, and I, I know Dr. Roy uh, reached out to me a while ago, not too long ago actually. Um, he wants to he wants me to put together a little piece on family. Uh, the theme of family, right? Like a five-minute snippet. So if anything that you want to share about on the theme of family, whether it's... Um, I mean, I can always talk about your father, but if you want to maybe ex- talk about after getting out, how's if issues with family or how's that gone? Well... You got a new family? Yeah. A lot of my family, when I went to prison, you know, like I said, I went to prison at 18 years old. And from, from 18 to 44 you know um, I come from a family my my mom come from a family of 13 my grandparents had 8 girls and 5 boys and by the time I went to jail I had over 50 cousins you know that's how big my family was yeah. and my whole 26 years of incarceration the only time I seen a cousin was if they were doing time with me. You know, the only time that uh, I seen an auntie is if they came on a visit to see their son that was incarcerated with me. You know, and for a long time, I was I was real bitter, you know, at my family because I felt, you know, that my family abandoned me. You know, then met my wife. My mom introduced me to my wife. You know, my wife... You know, she stood by my side. She told me, she said, 
because I used to try to push her away because I didn't I didn't feel that I was deserving you know of love I didn't because here I was sitting in prison and I wasn't doing at that time I wasn't doing anything to better my circumstances and then my wife she would write me letters and she would tell me about Christ and I'd be like man I don't want to hear that stuff <laughs> will you miss me I'm in prison I'm doing my thing you know because at that time I was ooh, I was I was a mess You're you still, know uh... And uh, this is she, before the Oprah show, right? Yeah, this is be- this is before that episode. Know, and she uh, was like, you know, I, I think I got the, you know, when I want to, I got charm, I got the gift of gab, you know. <laughs> and way before, way this is my story, so I'm gonna tell it how I want to tell it. <laughs> yeah. And way before she became my woman, she was in love with me, <laughs> oh. you know. But being yeah. the woman, huh? Huh? <laughs> but being the woman that that she was, the woman of God that she was, she would not get involved with me until I gave my life to Christ. And it was some years that this woman was in love with me, you know, and she would yes, not so get involved. It's my story. I can tell it how I want to tell it. <laughs> I, I want to hear her story too. After I'm yeah. just kidding. So if you don't she want to know. She want to set the record straight right now. So that's how you get her to talk. Uh, there you go. She want to set the record straight. He knows what he's doing, huh? But uh, yeah, I'm just reeling her on in. You know. Yep. But she, when I after I gave my life to Christ, she, she told me now I'm your woman, and she came to see me. And she hear him say that. But I don't remember that it happened that way. <laughs> How did it happen? You know, How did it happen then? I'm curious. Yeah, me too. Oh! How did it happen? Wow. I met him in um, the end of 1999. We was just going back and forth. Because and, at that time, like he said, his mom introduced us. Uh, she became a member of the church I was going to. And at that time, I was doing a prison ministry okay. so I was writing over like 20 people and so I just he's like well can you um, add my son to the list I'm like sure what's one more name to add to the list you know to tell about the Lord little, said, okay. little did you know huh? right <laughs> you know <laughs> here we stand here we sit today mm-hmm. but um, and after a while we started conversating and I was like you know why? You know, he did have a charm. You know, I, I was, you know, because we had, it was more than that. It was a conversation and we really clicked. You know, we were similar in a lot of ways. And, but we wasn't compatible. He wasn't, his mindset wasn't the same as mine. Like I said, he was um, a heathen. <laughs> wow. <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> no, but, story. You can tell yeah, you. I'm That's telling. right. It's her story. He That's then, right. No, but um, so a while um, we I stopped talking to him, and I had basically gave him an ultimatum that you know until this happens in your life, we can't talk, you know, and it was a hard thing to do. And then one day, were you in love with you? That ain't the. They didn't ask me that question. <laughs> But um, <laughs> but then one day I got a phone call and about how he you know changed his life around like a total 360 turnaround and he became a follower of Christ 
and then we escalated from there. Yes, I was in love with her. Uh, uh, <laughs> to answer your question, why you smiling big time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, and it just like escalated we, we, from. We there. got that on record too, okay? You can always bring it <laughs> <Yeah>. up. <laughs> and you know, it's it's been it's been a long road. It's a lot of in between in that story, but we're not oh, gonna get into that. I'm sure. A lot of in between, mm-hmm. but here we sit today. You guys look happy, so it's that's important. That's awesome. It's my buddy. Yeah. But even in that, um, like I said, a lot of my family, you know, I didn't. It was only my mom and my wife. My mom and my wife, and she gave me the ultimatum. You know, she was saying, as long as you, I try to push her away, and she told me, why are you pushing me away? I'm not here because I have to be. I'm here because I love you. And she told me, as long as you're fighting to come home to me. I'll stay by your side. When you stop fighting, that's when I'm gone. And I made her a promise. I promised her that I would do everything and anything in my power to get home to her. And when I walked out of prison, I said, did I, did I not keep my promise to you? And she was like, what are you talking about? I said, didn't I promise you that I would do whatever it takes to get home to you? And she said, yeah. And I want to say these great tears swelled up in her eyes and... You know, and she cried, and I wiped them away, but that didn't happen. <laughs> but this is your story, right? <laughs> yeah, it didn't happen. And she looked at me, and she said, thank you, honey, and kissed me. Hmm. And we walked away happily ever after. You know, that's the truth. There, I, but, believe, I believe it. Oh, um, That was that day. But, <laughs> that was that day, she said. <laughs> but far as but far as family, um, my wife, uh, for many years... I always said, if I ever get out of prison, I'm not messing with none of my family. And my wife always told me, you have to forgive them. You have to forgive them. Forgive, forgive, forgive. And like I said earlier, you know, with, with, with knowledge comes responsibility. And uh, for a long time, me and my sister, all oh, we bumped heads viciously. I think my sister hurt me the most because that was my big sister. She was always my protector. You know, anytime I was in trouble, I always can hear my sister's footsteps. Like, That's my brother, you know, and she would fight for me. She would do it. I believe my sister would lay down her life for me if it was necessary, if it was needed. And I had told my sister one day, I said, you know what? I've, anytime I was in trouble, I've always been able to look over my shoulder and always see my big sister coming. And I said, I've been looking over my shoulder for some years now, and I don't see you coming. Where you at? You know? And it wasn't until later on that I really understood that I didn't leave none of them. I mean, they didn't leave me. I left them. And if I was looking over my shoulder and see my big sister, that means she was able to look up and see her little brother. And when I couldn't see her, she could no longer look up and see her little brother because I was in prison. And, you know, when I came out of prison, I forgave all my family. And right now I have strong you know, family support, you know, strong family ties. And my wife, my mom, my family, my children, those are the ones that's making a difference in my reentry program. You know, it's helping me to really adjust to to society. You know, so family is very important. Is there any, I know we're, we're going to try and wrap up in a bit, but is there anything that you want to share that you feel like you didn't get to share? I'm a little interested in how the the... The narrative therapy works at a school. It's the same way. Um, like I said, when we went to Horseman Junior High, right, um, we talked to the children there. And um, 
we basically took them through the same thing. I got up and I told them, hey, you know, and it was it was funny because afterwards I didn't notice, but everybody was was just like quiet, you know, inattentive, and whatever we asked them to do, they basically did it, you know. And the teacher, she said afterwards, we have never seen those kids that attended to anything, you mm. know, and it's 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 me sharing. You know, it's us sharing our story that made people comfortable with, you know, feeling safe to share their story. Because a lot of times when you're dealing with narrative therapy, you're dealing with people that are ashamed, you know, and they feel that, oh, I'm the only one that's going through this, or I'm the only one that's done that, or I'm the only one that this has happened to. But when you begin to share your story, what it does is it takes away the shame. And even with young children, they participated and they participated well. You know, and it's the same concept. We didn't change anything, and they they participated well. Sounds like you're probably going to look for a job in, in a school at some point. Yeah, it seems like... <laughs> if my record don't hurt me. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, they do it... Next, nowadays, they only go back seven years. Um, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot easier for us coming out of prison to get jobs because... You know, I don't know if you had, if you're familiar with it, they had that movement called Ban the Box. Yes. And, you know, with Ban the Box is, it took away that bias because now employers can't ask me any longer, am I convicted of, a, of ever been convicted of a felony? Or they would say, um, within the last seven years, have you been convicted of a felony? Anything over seven years, you say no. Because they, they, the background check only go back seven years, so it takes away that bias of a person as myself because my conviction is over twenty six years ago. So now uh-huh. you're forced to look at my credentials versus my record. So this box, I think, if I understand it right, ban the box thing, right? It takes it out of the first um, application, so it gets you into the interview process. But yes. then after that, they if they have a background check. That something comes up, then you know. I think the band the box movement wasn't a way to get everybody an equal opportunity at an interview, right? And at, see, at some but, point, but even in that, right? You know, I would go in to an interview, um, and I would explain, hey, you know, when I was 18 years old, this is what happened. And me personally, I would take if if I felt it was going to be a tough interview, I would take my commutation order. You know, from the governor's office, I would take uh, chronos, you know, that I received while in prison to speak to, to, to my character. And I would take that in there, you know, and, and being proactive instead of being reactive and say, hey, well, look, you know, this is what I did when I was 18 years old. But now this is the person that I am at 44 years old. And your governor of the state of California said that this is who I am, you know. So all I'm doing is asking for an opportunity, you know, so a lot of times we have to be proactive, you know, instead of being reactive. If we be proactive, you know, and being honest and be forthcoming, look, man, this is what I did. This is, you know, and this was, I was a kid and everything. But I've been seeing a lot of men come out of prison and, and it has been getting jobs right away. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap up now. Is there anything that you, you want to say? I want to thank Trevial and Hope for sharing their time and their story with us today. And you, the way you met, I mean, that's a, that's a cute story. I didn't think I was gonna get that story. <laughs> I appreciate it. Thank you for sharing. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. <laughs> um, and so for he tricked me. 
He tricked <laughs> I didn't trick you. I just reeled you in. Uh, <laughs> Manipulation is not always bad <laughs> No seriously You know I, I tell people all the time It's it just what you manipulating to You manipulate me to something good Or manipulate me to something bad Manipulation is not always bad uh, That's for another episode <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll bring you back We'll bring you back We do have to have you guys back So I appreciate it Thank you so much It's up to the boss That's the scheduler right there Alright well For sure Alright Thank you. Um, so before we go, I want to have our listeners, well, thank our listeners. First, I also want to thank um, Nico and Espacio 1839, which is where we're recording out of. And we've been recording for the past couple episodes. Um, if you have any questions or any comments or any suggestions for future episodes, please uh, go ahead and email us at sentencespodcast at gmail.com. Follow us uh, on Instagram at sentencespodcast. And... Uh, Yeah, thanks again for tuning in. This is Alfred. This is Jose. 